you have your Bibles, you can turn to Proverbs 30. We're going to be, nope, 31. We're going to be there this morning. We're finishing up Proverbs. Um, so as we've been going through the Proverbs, this is kind of a one installment of a few uh, where we're navigating through the wisdom literature of the Bible. Um, we've been going through Proverbs this summer. Uh, we're going to be taking a break and, and then going back into Ecclesiastes this fall. Um, but the question that all of the wisdom literature is asking, coming from different angles, is what is the good life? And so it hits it from the Proverbs, which is a, a brilliant teacher, hits it from a different angle of a critic who's gone through life a good bit, maybe a little bit on the cynical side, and, and coming at it from a, a critic perspective. And then you have a, a weathered, older individual who's writing uh, the, the book of Job and, and, ex, and showing uh, us another angle of wisdom literature. And so everyone is kind of helping guide us through life. And it's interesting, this question, what is the good life, is, is something that we're fed over and over again in our culture. We're fed what uh, the good life is every single day. And it's this if-then clause. If uh, you have or own X, then you'll have the good life. If you do or achieve X, you'll have the good life. If other people say or think of you in this way, you'll have the good life. And we're all tempted in different ways, but the end goal of that is that if you do this, if you have this, this if-then clause, then you'll experience the good life. But yet you can attain those things that, that the world tells you to attain and it leaves you empty. And yet the wisdom literature comes at it from a very different angle. It's not a circumstantial angle. It's a much deeper angle. And what the wisdom literature teaches us in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and Job, it teaches us that the good life is not in what you have. The good life is founded upon the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the good life. Who God is and who we are. And we've been navigating through that over these last several weeks. And we get into the end of Proverbs and we meet an individual and his name is Lemuel. He's a king. And up to this point, the first 29 chapters of Proverbs is written by a king named Solomon. And we hear more about him as we enter into Ecclesiastes in, in several weeks. And then in chapter 30, which we read last week, we read a guy, his name is Agar. And then this week, we're going to meet this individual named King Lemuel. And I appreciate uh, the diversity that we find in Proverbs because historically, Lemuel was a non-Israelite king. Solomon was an Israelite king, and Lemuel was not. And what that tells me is that it, I appreciate uh, that this wisdom that we find here in the Bible exceeds culture. It exceeds language. It exceeds uh, demographic. And it speaks to us in the 21st century. It speaks to those that lived in the 1st century. It speaks to those that lived in the 14th century. It speaks to all. It transcends cultures. To all, the wisdom of God is available. So in Proverbs 31, we find a, a mother, and she sits down with her son, who is this king named Lemuel. And so I want you to picture, as we read through this, that it's like a mom takes her son out to Waffle House, right? And they sit down together. And this mama has some things to teach her boy. She's not phased or like caught off guard or like needing to respect the kingship of her son. It's her baby, right? And so mamas, regardless of what your kids do, they're your baby, right? And so this mama comes to her son, it's her baby, and she speaks to him directly, maybe in a challenging way, but speaks to him nonetheless. And, and, and in her speaking to him, she's also speaking 
to us. And so in, in verse 1 through 9, we see that she gives wisdom on leadership and life. And then in verse 10 through the end of uh, Proverbs 31 to verse 31, we see it's a, a poem of application related to wisdom. And so well, let's read the first uh, several verses of Proverbs 31, starting in verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. We'll start there. Again, she sits down with him, and I can imagine she, her looking into his eyes and saying, Honey, darling, and, and telling him some things that we find here. And ultimately what she's saying to him is, Don't sell your soul. Don't give your soul up. Don't sell your soul to anything less than God. In verse 3, she says this, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. And then she lays out what the implications of that mean. But this is kind of the, the bedrock of these first several verses. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those uh, who destroy kings. Flesh this out. This word strength is not the best way to translate this word. It's deeper than strength. It's more substantial than strength. What, what is also interpreted in uh, similar words would be, uh, don't give your virtue or your valor or your legacy to women. Don't give your virtue to another. It reminds me of a story in Genesis 25. You might remember it. You might remember the felt uh, boards growing up, potentially. And so you have Jacob, and he's probably making something like a French onion soup, right? And so he's making this French onion soup, and then his brother, his older brother, Esau, comes along. And so Jacob's working hard. He's cut the onions. He's got the cheese in the soup. This is what they ate in that day. And so uh, Esau comes up and smells the fragrance, and he's starving. And he comes up and, and he says, man, give me some soup. And Jacob's like, nah, man. He's like, no, for real, I'm so hungry. He's hangry. You know what that is. And so he's hangry. He's like, no, I need some soup. And, and Jacob's like, no, I'm, I'm good. And then, he's, and then they begin to barter and begin to negotiate. And, and ultimately, Jacob's like, man, if you give me your birthright, then you can have this, this soup. And Esau, in this moment of this high honor that he had, has by being the firstborn, he gives his birthright for this soup, and Jacob, he receives it, sold his legacy for something that would be flushed in just a matter of time. And that's what the mom's talking about here. We can sell our legacy, we can sell our valor, our virtue for something far, far, far inferior. Don't give your strength to others. And then it goes on and says, don't give your ways to those who destroy kings, a way is a course of life. It's a, it's a path you were going on. And that mom over those hash browns is looking at her son and she says, I don't want you to sell yourself short. I don't want you to give your soul to things lesser than God. Man, he's ruler, but again, he's her baby and she gives him wisdom. And so how does this translate for us? I think it translates pretty directly if we're honest. 
And what are you tempted to sell out to? What are you tempted to sell out to? It might be vocationally and it might not. It might be things related to your career and it, and it might not. We can sell out what's most important to us by competing idols that promise us things which will never provide. We can sell ourselves towards things that promise us things and they never fulfill. It's the wisdom literature that cuts through culture and meets us in our postmodern cultural moment and invites us to the same things that invited King Lemuel to. Authors like Tim Keller have simplified root idols into four things that can drive our behaviors and lead us to sell our souls to things which are in return foolish. I'd love to submit them to you. Four kind of root idols that can drive our lives. The first is power. This can drive us. This can be something that we can sell ourselves to. The, the mama speaks directly to Lemuel and relates it to women, but we can translate that to many other things, and power can be one of those things that we can sell ourselves to. A longing for influence and a longing for recognition, and we can sell ourselves to it. We can sell ourselves, and that can be related to our careers oftentimes, wanting to have power. If I have this, then man, it will give me satisfaction and meaning and purpose, and it never will. The next would be control, a longing to have everything go according to my plans. And this, this translates into relationships, into your marriages, into sibling relationships, into how you raise your kids and how you interact with your roommate, this longing for control. If they just did it my way, if she just put the darn toothpaste cap back on the toothpaste, life would be okay, right? And so it, it translates in so many different hours. If, if they just did this, then, then everything would be just fine. Man, it can translate into expectations. I just long to have my life look this way. I believe I deserve for my life to look this way. And we begin to strive for it. And if we don't get it, we feel like an epic failure. And if we do get it, it leaves us empty. Maybe control of our future. The way we think our future should look like, our finances should look like, our career should look like, our house should look like, our kids should look like. The list goes on and on and on. But don't sell your soul, Mama says. The third idol that Tim Keller references, these core idols, is comfort. A longing for pleasure can drive you into the ground. Gain the world and lose your soul, Jesus said. You can gain all of the comfort that the world gives you and lose your soul along the way. A root idol. Fourth, approval. A longing to be accepted or desired. We can yearn for this. Oftentimes, frankly, that comes when we have absent parents or those that are distant from us, guardians growing up, and we begin to live our life if we don't uh, really dig deep and allow the gospel to penetrate the core of who we are. We can live our whole life looking for that affirmation that we longed for from a parent that we didn't get, and we can live yearning for that. These are root idols, and these are the things that we can oftentimes sell our soul towards. It's the essence uh, of these things is pride. Ben Reed talked about that several weeks ago, that you know, pride it leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. I don't need God to fulfill the deepest parts of who I am functionally, but I need these other things. 
We can search for them. And then a mama, again, sits with the, with the waffle in front of her, and she says, don't sell your soul, Lemuel. Don't do it. See, every idol will promise you things it can't fulfill and steal from you, leaving you empty. Every idol will do it. we got to call a spade a spade. And only God, the supreme Lord, doesn't just take and take and take. Only God, found through the Bible, is the one who gives. It's the one who supplies, who provides, who guides, who loves, who cares, who extends grace and, and continues to extend grace and who continues to extend grace. Every idol will take and take and take and take until you're left empty and then continue to take and continue to take. But the God of the Bible found through Jesus, he gives and he gives and that's where we find nourishment and a soul satisfaction. And the mama says, don't sell your soul. In ancient Greek mythology, <clears throat> there was a creature, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, I typically turn the, you can't cough in public anymore, um, so it always gets embarrassing whenever I have something in my throat, um, just real talk, that's how I feel every time I come up here, am I going to cough, Lord have mercy. Um, <clears throat> But in uh, Greek mythology, there were these creatures. They were called sirens. And these sirens, if you read Greek mythology growing up, or maybe more recently, uh, they were these creatures. They were half bird with the face of a human. And they would be on these cliffs. And they would sing these beautiful songs. And these uh, ships, these captains, the story would go, would hear the alluring sounds of these sirens singing these beautiful songs, and they would begin to want to gravitate towards them. The problem was there was these rocky, these, this rocky terrain right in front of the cliffs, and it would destroy the ships. These beautiful sounds would end up destroying them. And in the same way, on a practical level, we have sirens in our lives that entice us, that draw us. If you just have this, if you just attain this, if you just sell your soul to this, then you'll find the things that you're longing for. And it ends up leading us to rocky cliffs. And that mama leans into Lemuel and to us. She gets into our business, and that's what wisdom literature does. And it says, don't be enticed by the sirens. Don't sell your soul. And the text continues in verse 8, and we read this. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. She translates, she, tra uh, she kind of transitions kind of seamlessly, and she says, if you're going to give yourself to something, give yourself away. Don't give yourself to try to gain more and try to find these things that you're not going to be satisfied with. If you want to give yourself to something, give yourself away. Not to gain power, but to give up your power to serve others. She says, open your mouth for the mute. Open your mouth for the destitute. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. You know, we went through a series a few months ago called Gospel Human Flourishing 
We talked about how the gospel teaches us about justice. It teaches us how to care for the quartet of the vulnerable. We talked about the poor and the orphan and the refugee and the widow and how we're invited because of the gospel, not out of shame or out of guilt, but because of the gospel motivating us into caring for those just like God has cared for us. And so in the same way, we we want to allow that to be true of ourselves, that we would, as we grow in life, that we wouldn't in return want to hoard, but that we wouldn't want to give our lives away, specifically caring for those who are needy. And so, man, we we plug Atlanta Angels and them uh, serving foster care. We want to get behind them and and serve alongside with them. We want to get behind Brumby Elementary School, this Title I school right down the road. We want to love and serve and build relationships with them there, among other ministries, First Care Women's Clinic, and so forth. We want to do that on a practical level. And then in verse 10, the story continues, and it changes gears. The poem says this, it says, an excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. In other words, who can find a, a, a virtuous woman? And you can kind of read the rest of the text and you kind of lose the fact that, again, we're still at Waffle House. Mom is still talking to Lemuel and she's still giving him wisdom. This word, excellent, uh, can also be translated as virtuous. And it's the same word that we see in verse 3 when, when it says, do not give your strength to women. That word strength is the same word that we see, an excellent wife. It's the same word there. So a woman of inner beauty and strength and noble character. I know that if we get into, and we are, we're, here we are in Proverbs 31, we need to bring some clarity because it's easy to kind of have this picture of the Proverbs 31 woman. And I want to speak to that a little bit. I want to say that that's not a correct interpretation of these last 21 or 22 verses that we see at the end of Proverbs 31. We've turned it into something that it wasn't intended to be. Uh, This isn't prescriptive, reading these verses. These are descriptive. This is a way that wisdom can look, not the way that wisdom must look. There's a difference, right? This is a, a way that wisdom can look in our lives, not the way that wisdom must look in our lives. See, this woman is a woman of noble character. This is meant to be a tangible expression of godly Wisdom, an example of wisdom in action. This is not an instruction that every woman must be married, must have children, and must take up the loom. Okay, that's not the point of this text. Thank you. Um, And so for some of you, you may just need to exhale because maybe you're coming to this text and like, what is he going to say? Or maybe you felt a lot of pressure in your life uh, around this text. And I want to just say maybe we should exhale and see maybe more of an appropriate way to interpret this text. It is okay if your life as a woman doesn't look like Proverbs 31. Ruth, in the Bible, her life didn't look like Proverbs 31. She didn't make clothes for her husband. She had no husband. She was widowed. Ruth's children didn't rise up and call her blessed. She was childless. Ruth didn't exchange fine linens and the merchants and and have an immaculate home. She worked all day in the sun. She was poor and gleaning on the outside of people's land to to get food. That was only for the poorest of the poor in Israel. And yet Boaz says of Ruth, before she gets married, before she has kids, before she becomes wealthy and an influential woman, 
He says, all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. So it's not just one type. If you go this route, you're a woman of noble character. A woman of noble character, a man of noble character is one who fears the Lord. That's what this text is speaking to us. She was a woman of valor, not because she checked off the Proverbs 31 list, but because she submitted to the fear of the Lord with bravery and strength. She was a woman of wisdom. And this is a way that wisdom can look, not the way that wisdom must look. And so we'll get into the description of what we find here, a description of what a virtuous life can look like. Again, not um, prescriptive, but descriptive. In verse 15, it says, She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Verse 16, She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. In verse 20, she opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. In verse 21, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. See, she knows her strengths and she's using them to help the world around her. The essence of her life was to give it away. This is where wisdom leads us, not in, not in taking and taking and taking. Wisdom, godly wisdom, leads us to a place where we can give our lives away freely. This is where wisdom leads us. And if you don't believe me, consider where divine wisdom ultimately led the Son of God, giving himself away. New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks, he wrote a book called Two Mountains. You might have read it or heard of it. Uh, and it's about the two mountains of life, and a lot of it's taken from the wisdom literature. Um, the first mountain is what society tells us to give ourselves to, to give our lives to. And it's to pursue what may be called the, the resume virtues, to pursue personal goals, to pursue things that make you happy. It's about you. It's about pursuing happiness. And man, if you stay on that first mountain all your life, you will sell your soul to something. There's lies from the first mountain that you, I just need more freedom. If I could just have more freedom, then I would find this happiness I'm looking for. And freedom really isn't that great at the end of the day. It won't satisfy what your soul needs the most. Another thing, that, a lie that the first mountain says is, do what you love. You can just have what you love and you will be satisfied, but it doesn't lead to satisfaction. Then he lays out the second mountain. If you want to show up that picture, um, there should be a picture. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Um, but the second mountain, there it is. First mountain's about me. The second mountain's about us. And the second mountain is pursuing your eulogy virtues, not uh, giving yourself to pursuing um, what's the word I used, uh, resume virtues, but to pursue eulogy virtues. It's about pursuing joy, not happiness. There's a difference. You can have joy in the midst of pain and sorrow. You can't have happiness in the midst of pain and sorrow. It's about serving others. It's about, uh, it's about finding your, uh, being founded upon commitments, Commitments of, uh, of family and friendship, commitments of faith, commitments of community, commitments of your calling. And our culture bucks against commitments. 
But this second mountain that David Brooks talks about, that the wisdom literature speaks of, speaks to this. The second mountain is about getting yourself out of your way and giving yourself to the world around you, being so clear of understanding of who you are and how God made you that you end up giving yourself away. The Atlantic summarized this book, The Two Mountains with these cliff, hanger, these cliff Notes. It says this, the Brooks argues that life on the first mountain, the mountain of personal goals, worldly success, career ambitions, and traveling in the right social circles is transitory and ultimately unsatisfying. Eventually, though, if you're fortunate, you find yourself on the second mountain, one characterized by other-centeredness and self-giving. So this is what we find in the wisdom literature. And this is what we find this woman is doing, this woman of noble character, that she is giving herself away. She's serving her community and caring for those that are around her. Again, echoing the words of Jesus that you can gain the world and lose your soul. This wisdom text is reminding us, and live in the fear of the Lord. The application is live in the fear of the Lord, remembering who God is and remembering who you are. And this woman gives herself away. She doesn't lose herself and who she is, but she finds joy in serving others. Wisdom is not found in making much of yourself, but by using your resources to serve others. And the Proverbs ends by declaring this statement as Lemuel sits with his mother and his mother teaches him these things. And it finalizes in verse 30. It says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Again, don't, don't live for that first mountain. Don't live for those idols that we talked about earlier. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Remember, Lemuel is, is the target audience here. He's not speaking to women right now. Speaking directly to Lemuel, she's showing a model woman who has taken God's wisdom and translated it into her life. She's applied the Proverbs with her life. And his mom says, this is who a beautiful woman is. This is a woman of noble character. So what does it mean to live well? The Proverbs tell us that if you use wisdom, you will build a life that is good and holy and beautiful. And we've seen that over these last several weeks. And, and starting next week for four weeks, we're going to do a, a mini-series on community. We're going to be focusing as we move towards launching our community groups. We're going to be focusing on community and a vision for community together. And we're going to be inviting you guys to partake in community groups and the value of doing life together that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. And then after Labor Day, we're going to be diving into Ecclesiastes, we're going to be looking at this critic, and he's going to say to us, you think using wisdom will bring you success, but he says, life here under the sun is meaningless. We're going to have a good time together, dialing through a book of the Bible that we need to listen to. We don't bypass that one in Revelation, right? We're like, we need to listen to these and allow them to shape who we are, and we're going to learn from this, this critic, this this person. See, the Bible is a rich book, friends. It has depth that guides us, wisdom that stabilizes us. But I, I want to land here as we enter into a time of confession. I want to kind of circle back to what we talked about when we talked about those sirens, those, those creatures that were singing songs, that were drawing people to hit those cliffs, ending up ruining their lives. And I got to ask this question as we enter into confession. What are the sirens for you? 
What are those things that are just alluring you, drawing, if you just had this, if you just achieved this, if you just bought this, if you just got to this place, you'll find a sense of satisfaction. And the wisdom literature says, it's a creature that's gonna destroy you. So what are the sirens for you? Maybe it's vocationally. This stand, I just need to get here. And you're just driving yourself and you're ruining people along the way. You're ruining potentially relationships along the way. And you don't even see it because all you hear is that beautiful sound. If I just got this. Maybe it's a standard of living that you feel like you have to get to. Maybe it's someone you compare yourself to just got to be like this person. It is driving you into the ground. It sounds like a beautiful sound, but it's ending up destroying your life. And, and the wisdom literature, Lumio's mother is reminding you there's a better way. And again, back to what I said earlier, maybe you never had a dad who affirmed you. And this is real. And you find yourself spinning your wheels in the mud, trying to find affirmation that you never got growing up. And you begin to feel this alluring cry from these sirens. And the, the mama here is saying, no, there's a better way. You have a father who actually has fully affirmed you in Jesus, who's loved you extravagantly. Again, these things are, are calling your name and promising you things that it can't fulfill. And, and wisdom is inviting us into a better way. And there is a voice calling to you from heaven, inviting you home. A father inviting you home, that there is a place of stability, there's a place of worth, there's a place where you don't need to prove yourself. There's a place in the gospel that brings peace, regardless of circumstances. You might not ever get that thing that you want to get. You might not ever achieve that thing that you long to achieve. But you have a home with your father, and there's a louder cry, a more gentle cry than those sirens that's inviting you to a place of stability and satisfaction that's only found in the gospel. So this is our segue into a time of confession, man, where you have the opportunity and to turn your heart, as Trevor comes up, to turn your heart, to turn your affections, to repent and say, man, maybe, maybe I'm going down this path. Maybe these sirens are calling to me, and man, I need to reset. And so we come every Sunday morning, and we gather, not just because we want some good coffee. I mean, we want to remember the story of God. We want to remember who we are, and it's not what the world tells us that we are. We're a distinct people who have been loved by God and brought into his family and invited to be the light in this world of Jesus. So friends, I invite you, consider what those sirens might be and to turn your affections and your hearts back to Jesus.